for the rest of us who are sticking around here, open up your Bibles. Always a wonderful thing to bring your own Bible uh, with you. We will continue in the book of Job, part six of our sermon series in the book of Job. This morning, we will hear about Job's counselors, and I use the word counselors in parentheses, Job's counselors. Job chapter 6. And so if you have your text, turn with me uh, to Job chapter 4 is where we are going to begin. If you don't have your text, uh, the verses will be up on the screen. And so feel free to follow along that way as well. So Job chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. We will actually be um, throughout the book of uh, Job, a large section of the book of Job. And so if you have your Bibles, be prepared to flip along with me. Uh, if you don't, the text will be on the screen. Uh, Job part 6, Job's counselors. This morning we will plunge into what is the largest section of the book of Job, chapters uh, 4 through, let me get this right, 25, is the dialogue section. You can call them the speech sections, if you will. It's where Job's friends and Job have lengthy discussions about Job's situation. And so Job chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. Would you pray with me one more time before we get started? Father, I pray for your presence here. Pray, Spirit, you would come, open our hearts, clear our minds, uh, rid us from distractions. May we hear from you, uh, because what we have in our laps and on our screen is your holy and perfect word to us. And we want to hear it, we want to receive it, and we want to live it. And so, Spirit, would you come, uh, use my voice and my lips, and would you come change us by your word? We ask it in the name of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I don't think I've ever met anyone who enjoys being accused of something that they didn't do. Uh, By show of hands, how many of you have ever been accused by someone, and let's not rib your spouse here, how many of you have ever been accused of doing something that indeed you did not do? Okay, most of us, I know that I have for sure, most of us react negatively and poorly when faced with um, unfounded accusations. I want to share a couple stories with you um, about me and my personal experience with this. The first goes back to fifth grade. Uh, When I was in fifth grade, we uh, began to move and shift rooms, and that was a new deal for us in fifth grade. And they labeled us uh, by class, by letter, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I was a part of the G group. And so we were known as the G class. And we went from class to class together. Now what you really need to know about our class, this G group, is that it was full of hoodlums and hooligans. uh, Of course, me not being one of them. Um, That's the truth. I really wasn't that bad. (laughs) But we had some doozies in that class, some troublemakers, and needless to say that when the G group rolled around to a particular teacher that they dreaded the G group. And so this group of of students went together and we had something in our school in fifth and sixth grade called the D.A.R.E. program. How many of you are familiar with the D.A.R.E. program? Okay, you've heard of it. Uh, I don't know what it stands for, drug awareness, something, education. It's it's intention is to uh, make us as young people aware of 
drugs and their danger. And so we had a police officer, a DARE officer, come, uh, I think once a week, and do DARE classes with us. Well, needless to say that he uh, enjoyed our G group just as much as any other teacher of the bunch. And uh, to make a long story short, throughout the several weeks, I believe we began to wear on him, our class in particular. And his, I think, level of taking it was about at the very top until the, the fateful day. I was sitting in a, it was a science lab, because I remember uh, it was a science lab, and there was, you know, little gas things and a, a drain, and that will come into play. And me and my friends were kind of kidding with one another. Okay, maybe I was one of the hoodlums then. We were kidding with one another and not paying much attention, and uh, we had pins at that moment, I'm sure you have one, that has a little thing that you can slip, you know, onto your pocket, you know, a little bendy kind of thing. And so I had one, and my friend had one, and my friend stole my, my pen and did this kind of thing with, the, with, the, with the, the pen. He bent it. Can you imagine that? He bent it out so that I had a pen that had a protrusion, if you will. And, and so I wasn't very pleased with that. I thought that was not really nice of him. And so in good Christian graces, I wasn't a believer then, I thought I would get even with him. And so while he wasn't looking, I grabbed uh, what I thought was his pen, and I grabbed it, and I bent it, and I even did a a, a better thing. I kind of one-upped him, if you will. The sink in the drain there in the laboratory kind of had like a a this, kind of a a drain covering, if you will, and what I decided to do was to trick him into thinking that I was dropping his pen into the sink, and so I, I bent it, and I hung it, right? So that it kind of waffled, and, but I hit it. And I was like, hey, Aaron, I remember his name. Hey, Aaron, look. And he's like, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm going to drop it down. And I did this, so he thought it would fall in, and, you know, it, it caught because I had bent the pin, you know. And uh, so I thought I was all clever until the D.A.R.E. officer said, Aaron, can I have my pin back? Oh, okay. And long story short, he flipped out. And that is not Aaron, the D.A.R.E. officer. He flipped out. I mean, literally, he was like, you're the worst class ever. I'm so tired of you and other horrible things. And he said, who did this? And at this point, I'm probably crying, you know. And I'm like, I did, but I didn't. And before I could let him know that I didn't know it was his pen, and I wouldn't have done it if I knew that it was his pen, he said, I don't know. He pointed at me and said something mean and left. He walked out of our class. He accused me of doing this. And then you have everyone in the class saying, Trey, it's your fault. And I'm the angel of the class. I'm like, no, I didn't mean it, you know. I was being accused. And I had to write myself before him. Uh, Second story, maybe not as entertaining, but still pertinent. Um, My first semester at DTS, um, we took a class. I took a class called Research Methods. It was a winner, um, let me tell you. Tons of fun. Uh, Basically, the point of the class was to teach us how to do research and how to write papers in a correct format. Lovely. Um, So we had to do this class, and we had an assignment. He gave us a pile of books, and he said, write a, a fake bibliography, you know, like you would, a bibliography page. And he said in class that you can work together on it if you want. You can get in groups of one or two and work on it. And so my friend Jason and I got together, and we worked through it. And, you know, where does this go, and how does that happen? And we did our papers together. So I get a call over Christmas break, my freshman year at DTS, and it's my DTS professor. And I'm like... Hello? He's like, "Uh, Trey, I've got a question for you. I'm like, okay. He's like, I have your paper here, your research paper, and we noticed that you and, 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 and Jason have the exact same answers on your page. And he said, why is that? 
And I said, well, we worked together because you said we could, and we worked through it, and we turned in our papers. And he said, oh, so you didn't cheat off him. And I said, no, I didn't cheat off him. And he, he didn't cheat off you. No, we worked on it together, and we came up with our answers, and they happened to be the same. And he said, okay, Trey, I believe you. That's what Jason said. I, I'm not, I'm not going to accuse you of cheating, but I wanted to make sure what had happened. And he said, here's a bit of advice. Next time you work on a project in seminary with someone, you know, don't... Make sure you don't have the exact same answers. And at that point, I was like, okay, whatever, goodbye. You know, and then I was like, that's stupid. You told, you know, I, I probably said some things I shouldn't have. But, uh, but at that moment, the fear of being accused in, in, a, in a, an academic setting, not only that, a seminary setting for that matter, that was a pretty bad accusation. Uh, you know, we don't respond well to being accused. And this morning in Job uh, chapters 4 through 25, all... 21 of those chapters, what we essentially see is that Job responds very similarly. Job is going to be accused of doing and being something and somebody that he's not. And Job is going to respond to his friends' accusations. Last week, if you remember, we saw Job's lament, Job chapter 3. Job lamented his situation before the Lord. It was a raw, emotional, uncensored outburst of feeling. He said, I wish I would have never been born, and I wish I could die now. This is really bad. And so imagine with me how it must have been. Remember, his friends were there. They were not breaking the silence. They were sitting with him for seven days, seven nights in total silence trying to comfort him and can you imagine how they must have felt when they heard Job utter the words of Job chapter 3 much like you and I probably felt when we first heard these words of a godly man this deep lament I can imagine that they stood there staring at him I can imagine that their eyes were just wide open and that their jaws were just dropped to the ground. I can imagine them shaking their head back and forth as they listened to their friend pour forth this lament. I imagine that their lips had to be held in constraint because they wanted to speak, but they had to wait for him to finish. And in their mind, Job's lament confirmed what they had been suspicious of all along was that Job was being punished. Job was being punished for what he had done. This was their conclusion. And so what we're going to do this morning is let's uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 4, and we're going to read Job chapter 4, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 25. So if you'll turn with me to Job chapter 4, just kidding. <laughs> We're not going to do, you guys are like, oh man. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. That would be as long as, that would, would have taken as long as the Illinois-Michigan game yesterday. If you saw that, it would be that long. We won't do that. Three overtimes. So uh, what we're going to do today is, is three things. If you're taking notes, here are kind of three headlines and you can fill them in. Uh, first thing we're going to do is I'd like to make some observations. I'd like to make some observations on the section just to give us a bit of background, help us understand kind of the parameters of this very lengthy section. Secondly, we're going to take a look at some selected verses. And so we are not going to read all 21 chapters. Uh, we will uh, hear several verses. And so we will be skipping around quite a bit. And then third, 
we'll make some applications. So first, observations about the section. Uh, the first thing that we need to see is about the participants, that is Job and his friends, their view of God. This underlines the entire dialogue that we see between Job and his friends. There is this undercurrent, there is an assumption, a theological assumption that all, all of them hold, Job's friends and Job. As we move throughout the section, Job will have his thinking about God and how God handles people shift a little bit, but fundamentally, write this down, Job and his friends hold to the theory of retribution. The theory of retribution. Basically what that means is this, God always rewards the good and God always punishes the bad. That's basically their underlying view of how God works. You obey God, God blesses you now, tangibly, physically. You disobey God, God punishes you now, in this lifetime, tangibly and physically. All of the participants hold to this kind of view. And so with the current situation, let me give you some A, B, and C linear thinking. The thinking of Job's friends goes something, something like this. Job's friends think this way. Number one, all suffering is punishment for sin. All suffering is punishment for sin. Number two, Job is suffering. So therefore, the conclusion is Job is a sinner, right? Job has done something wrong. Since God punishes for sin, Job is suffering, Job is a sinner. That's basically what they think about Job. Job's line of thinking is very similar, although a bit different, his conclusion. Job will shift. Job will shift away from this uh, slightly. But basically what Job thinks is this. Number one, all suffering is punishment for sin, as his friends think. Uh, Number two, Job says, I am suffering. Punishment for sin, I'm suffering. But then Job says, but I know that I'm not a sinner, i.e., I know that I am suffering unjustly. I know that I have been upright in my ways. God is not punishing me. Therefore, and this is important, this is Job's conclusion. Not that he's a sinner being punished. His conclusion is that God is treating him unfairly. His conclusion is that God is unjust. We'll see this shift a little bit, but that's basically what Job is thinking. Number two, regarding the structure of the book, we won't see this because we're really going to be back and forth in a lot of these scriptures, scriptures. But if you read through the section, which I really encourage you to do, all sorts of good nuggets of truth in these sections. Essentially, what we have is three cycles of speeches. And in those cycles of speeches, one of Job's friends speaks, and then Job responds. Friend number two speaks, Job responds. Friend number three speaks, Job responds, end of cycle one. And this happens essentially three times, right? So that's, that's the structure. That's what's going on. They're taking turn duking it out verbally, if you will. Uh, the only exception there is that the last... One, cycle number three, you only get two speeches. So the third guy at that point is tired of talking and he drops out. And Job keeps talking quite a bit, as we'll see next week. So that's the structure. Third, regarding his friend's accusations, there's a progression here. As Job's friends accuse him, accuse him, accuse him, it's going to go from general to specific to, I wouldn't even say polite, congenial to downright dastardly. I mean, they will get ugly with him. And so basically, cycle one, essentially they suggest, write that word down, cycle one, they, they suggest that he has sinned. They basically say, well, if you have sinned, if you have done something wrong, and they basically say, you know, they suggest maybe he has sinned. Cycle number two, write the word insinuation. Uh, they insinuate that he has sinned by saying, you know what, sinful people get punished, Job. We all know this. 
the, the people who are morally wrong, God punishes them. Hint, hint, hint. You are being punished. They insinuate. Third, they go from suggestion to insinuation to mere, uh, to all-out accusation. Number three, they just basically say, okay, Job, we're, we're going to cut to the chase. Let me list out the things that we think you have done. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And they go on, and they list basically a bunch of bogus things. And so it gets on and on and on. So that's how, that's the big picture. Moving on, number two. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. I want us to see some selected verses from these three cycles. And so we're going to begin in chapter uh, 4, where the the cycle begins. Chapter 4 and cycle 1 called Suggestion. And so his friends suggest that he is... you know, that if he sinned, then he needs to repent. And so the way we're going to do this is we're going to see Job's friends, what they say to him. We're going to see, secondly, Job's response to his friends. And then thirdly, we're going to see what Job says in this cycle, cycle one, about God. That's most important here. I think that's most beneficial. What Job says to God about God, and that is going to be most interesting. So first of all, cycle one, this is what his friend Eliphaz says in verses six through eight. Let's begin there. Uh, Remember, he is going to suggest that Job has sinned. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? So he essentially says, isn't that what your hope of being restored is, God? Uh, Job, if you have integrity, if you repent, then that's going to be your way out of this. Verse 7, remember, so remember, this is what we learned. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where do the upright, uh, or where were the upright cut off? He essentially says, uh, if we can go back, he essentially says, you know what? Don't you know, those who are innocent, when when did that ever happen? When did the innocent ever perish? When did the upright ever experience what you are? Verse 8, as I have seen, so from his experience, as I have seen those who plow, a farming analogy, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And so that's just a sample. At the very beginning, they basically suggest that he sinned. They say, you know what? People get what they deserve in this lifetime. That's what we have seen. And so Job responds. Uh, Job responds to them in a lot of ways, but in 6.24, this is what he says. In 6.24, he says, Teach me, to his friends, teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Essentially, Job uh, refutes them, and he's like, I haven't done anything, like me before the dare officer. I didn't mean it. I haven't done anything. I'm innocent, you know? And he actually was innocent. Uh, And he essentially says, show me, show me. And and now I want to look a little bit about what Job says in this section regarding God. This is the most pertinent to us, I think, as believers. In in the first cycle, we're going to look at a couple different verses. Job, interestingly enough, is going to grow in his understanding and how he approaches and how he responds to God. And so first, Job is essentially going to toy... Job is going to toy with the idea using legal terms, using court images. He's going to toy with the idea in his mind about taking God to court, about suing the Almighty. This is the language that we're going to see. He is very hesitant. He even kind of says, oh, why am I thinking such foolish thoughts? You know, he he just entertains it in his mind. And so in chapter 9, this is what he says. 
I'll read 1 through 3, 14 and 16, 14 through 16, 19 through 20. Uh, Job says this, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, responding to his friend, but how can a man be in the right before God? If If one wishes to contend with him, that is in court, one could not answer him in a thousand times. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Verse 14, 15, Though I am in the right... I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. 19. If it is a a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? 20. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Essentially what I want us to see here is that Job initially entertains this idea of being like a lawyer, uh, taking God to court, sticking God on the witness stand and making God explain what is going on because Job understands that he is innocent. He He doesn't deserve, so to speak, what he has gotten. And so he toys with this idea, but I hope you get this sense of like a fear and a humility. He's just like, well, oh, I could, but... I'm not going, you know, I just, I just can't think about that. But what we find as the cycle continues and as his conversation continues, turn with me to Job 13. In Job 13, we see that this uh, is going to change. Job is going to progress a little bit in his thinking, and he is going to entertain more and more now in Job 13, as I get there, uh, the thought of litigating with God. And so chapter 13 is where we're going to be, 3, 15, 18, 22, and 23. Listen to what Job says. Job 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. A little stronger. Verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. A little bit stronger. Verse 18. Behold, I have prepared my case So he has his case ready. He's a prepared lawyer. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. That is, if I bring God to court, I know that he will see that he's being unjust. 22 and 23. Then call, he's speaking to God. Then call and I will answer you or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me known my transgression and my sin. Uh, Roy Zuck comments here, I think, in a helpful way. He says this of what Job is doing. Job wanted a legal hearing, an opportunity to prove, and catch this, the illegality of God's onslaught against him, the patriarchal plaintiff. And so in this section, cycle one, Job's friends say, you might have sinned. Job says, show me. And then as he speaks with God, he entertains this idea, and it's becoming stronger this desire to put God on the stand, if you will. Okay, cycle one, four through 17, four through 14, excuse me. Cycle two, we move from suggestion to insinuation. They suggest he's guilty. Now they're going to insinuate it by essentially saying, hey, we know that everyone who gets it, gets it from, as punishment from God. And so one of the key verses from Job's friends is found in chapter 20. And so turn ahead with me a little bit to chapter 20. In chapter 20, verses 4 through 7, this is what his friend Zophar says. And notice what he's going to say. He's making a direct inference here about Job losing everything. Verse 4, Do you not know this from old, 
since man was placed on the earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Yikes. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Essentially what he says is that, you know what? They may prosper for a little bit. The wicked may prosper for a little bit, Job. Hint, hint, like you did. But eventually, God's going to take away all their stuff. Hint, hint, like he did with you. And so they are moving from suggestion to insinuation. Uh, Job responds again to his friends here in uh, chapter 21, so flip one ahead. In 21, Job is going to respond, and he's essentially moving a little bit away from this theory of retribution. I don't think he ever fully moves away until the end of the book. But he begins to think, and I think he, he realizes that, you know, that's not always true. The wicked don't always get it in this lifetime. Sometimes the wicked prosper all the way to their deathbeds. And this is essentially what Job is going to say. And so let's read together uh, chapter 21, verses 7 through 13. Verse 7. Why do the wicked live, Job says, and reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. That is, they have a bunch of grandkids when they die. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. God doesn't always do it, does he? Their bulls breed without fail and their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They have grandchildren that sing and dance and play. They sing to the tambourine and to the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. Essentially, Job begins to move away and he says, is that really true? I mean, do the wicked always get it in this lifetime? And so he begins to question this. We've seen Job's friends uh, insinuate his guilt. We've seen him respond. I think one key verse as uh, in cycle two, as Job, as Job responds to God, uh, if you read through this, you'll get the sense that it's back and forth. Job goes from trusting God to placing his faith in God to accusing God from the depths of the valley to the heights of the mountain. And like any man and woman of faith who goes through a difficult time, we're up and down. We trust in God this moment and we don't that moment. Well, in, in a chapter 20, excuse me, in chapter 19, flip backwards a little bit. In, in chapter 19, we get a, a, just a gem of Job's faith. Essentially what Job is going to say is that he, he says, you know what? When it's all said and done, God is going to vindicate me. When it's all said and done, God is going to show that he has treated me wrong and that I am innocent. And while I think his premise is wrong, his faith, I think, is a good thing. So let's read this together, verses 23 through 27 in chapter 19. Job says, Oh, that my words were written, and lo and behold... (laughs) They are. This is an aside. I'm really glad that there's not like a book called Trey and that my spewings back and forth in moments of trial were written down. Job says he wants them written down. I'm really glad mine aren't. You know what I mean? You probably feel the same way. He says, oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. He wants a record so that if he's not vindicated before he dies, that someday people will see that he is in the right. Verse 24. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, that is the one who will vindicate me. God will show that I'm innocent, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Verse 26, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, 
whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Uh, This verse could mean a lot of things, but the point that I want us to see is that Job, he goes from accusing God to faith in God. It's up and down. And so in section two, in cycle two, essentially we see the friends insinuating that Job has been punished. We see uh, Job saying, is that always true? No, that's not always true. The wicked don't always get what they deserve in this lifetime. And then he moves from this depth to this height of faith, and he expresses faith in God, that God's going to to vindicate him. And so we see cycle three. It gets more intense here, and I think you'll see that. In cycle three, a couple key, key things happen. Number one, Job's friends pick up their intensity, if you will. It gets ugly. In just a few minutes, we're going to see a dramatic reading uh, from, from the creative mind of John Piper in just a few minutes, and we're going to see the level of intensity, I think, just really go up. But they move from suggestion to insinuation to accusation. So basically, what they're going to say is, here's what you've done wrong, Job. Let's just cut to the chase. Uh, chapter 22. Flip with me to chapter 22 of Job, and in verses 5 through 9, we're going to see that his friend Eliphaz essentially says, here's what you've done wrong, Job, starting in verse 5. Is not your evil abundant? He just basically says, man, you're a sinful guy. There's no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. He essentially says that, you know, someone has given you something as as credit. You've given them money and you're supposed to give it back and you've not done that. You've left them without a coat, essentially. Verse 7, you have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You don't care about the poor. You've not provided that for them. Verse 8, the man with power possessed the land, and the favored man and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Essentially, what we see here is that they are um, making up stuff. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Has anyone ever made up stuff about you that's completely false and, and said that to you and others? Probably has, probably will continue. And here they stoop to the level of, They just make stuff up. Here's what you've done, Joe. We know it. And he hadn't. (laughs) And so it gets ugly. Um, In this section, Job really begins to stop responding to his friends. He had been going back and forth, and he was, you know, saying, no, I'm innocent, and no, this isn't always true. In chapter, in cycle three, he just stops. (laughs) He's like, what else can I say? <laughs> I'm not going to defend myself anymore before you. But what he does say mostly relates to God. He turns away from re- responding to his friends, and he turns to responding to God. And so turn with me to Job chapter 23. This is, I think, a very key chapter in the book of Job. Here in Job 23, remember, we talked about this legal courtroom setting, that Job is getting more and more adamant, that he's considering more and more the idea of saying, God, I want to put you on the stand, I want to take you to court, because then I will be vindicated. Then you will have to admit that you're treating me wrongly and you're treating me unfairly, God, and I don't deserve this. And so this kind of language, I think, reaches its peak. His confidence, his misplaced boldness here, I think, reaches its peak. So we are going to read um, all of chapter 23. Do we have that back there on the, on the screen? It's okay, we don't. So read with me. That's my fault. Uh, chapter 23, just listen to it, Okay. If you have it in your text, read with me. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter, and my hand hand is heavy on account of my groaning. 
Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that is God, that I might come even to his seat, a legal term. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Before, Job was like, if I even bring this case before God, he wouldn't even pay attention. He wouldn't listen to me. And now he says, I'm going to bring my case to God. And he's going to listen. Uh, 26. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. He says, would he just overpower me because he's so big and mighty? No. He would listen to me. Verse 7. There, there an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backwards, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand where he is working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. He says, God, I want to bring this case before you, but you're not talking to me. You're not talking to me. Where are you? I want to, I want to set you on the, on the court, on the, on the, on the you know, stand here, but I, I can't find you. Verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out good as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. He says, I have obeyed God the best that I could. Verse 13. But he is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he has appointed for me, and many such things are in his hand. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet, and notice this, I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Essentially, what Job says is, He has not lost his reverence for God. He has not lost his respect that God is sovereign and does what he wants. There is still a a healthy fear to bring God to court. And yet essentially he says, that's not going to stop me. (laughs) It's not going to stop me. I'm going to move forward in this litigation process. Uh, Dr. Tom Constable says this about Job in this chapter. God's irresistible power... And his inscrutable behavior made Job afraid. Nevertheless, he determined to confront God with his apparent injustice. And so he is determined to do this. Um, how many of you guys, like, you, you guys, I should say, like lawyer courtroom movies? Any of you guys like that? You can admit it. I do. I'll admit it. I like courtroom movies. I like lawyer movies. I really enjoy that. You know, I, I like that. Um, there's a movie that I think probably most of us are f- familiar with. It's several years old called A Few Good Men. Uh, it's, a, it's a military drama. Uh, um, basically, there's a really short scene that probably everyone knows from the movie, but we're going to play it anyways. And the scene uh, is essentially you have Tom Cruise, and he is the prosecuting or the, the defending attorney, and he has a superior, Jack Nicholson, on the, ben- on, on the stand. Thank you, bench stand. You know. He's grilling him, right? And he's asking him questions and he's talking to his superior and he wants answers. Uh, basically, there was a, an apparent murder of a Marine by the name of Santiago. 
uh, Tom Cruise's two defendants. He's defending them. And the point that he's trying to make is that he believes that Jack Nicholson ordered what is called a code red, which was an intentional hazing of this murdered Marine. And there's this huge cover-up. And so he is demanding the truth from his superior, and he will not stop until he gets the truth. And so let's, let's play this, this familiar scene, very short scene here. You might have to change that. Maybe try minimizing it, possibly. There we go. You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! All right. So, we all know that scene, right? It's the epitome, the climax of the movie. And here's the deal, you know. um, Tom Cruise is... This is what gets me about that. Very much like Job, I think, in the sense that he says, I'm entitled to answers. Did you get that? Did you hear what he said? I'm entitled to it. And that's exactly what Job is saying to his superior. I am entitled to it. He says, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson says, what? You can't, you can't handle the truth. And in some sense, when we get to Job chapter 40 and 37, 38, when God finally talks, in some small way, God is essentially going to tell Job, you can't handle the truth. You can't, you can't, you can't handle it. Why don't you just let me be God? That's a preview. But that is a courtroom scene, and that, I think, is what Job is demanding. And so, at this point, uh, Martha's here, uh, we're going to uh, we're gonna hear this from a little, uh, a little different angle. From the creative mind of John Piper, uh, we've heard this from, for several different weeks, and we're going to hear it again, as John Piper, in a shortened, in a condensed manner, uh, uh, shares his rendering of how this could have played out. But near the end of seven days, a boating blend of gray and scarlet streaked the sky, and Job waked with a trembling sigh. I've seen the sky before. It seeps from some great battle in the deeps of angel-riven heaven. And if I know the signs, it means some cliff is in my way. Oh God, hold on to me. I have no strength. This dawn is darkening over me, and I do fear another fall may lay before me in this path of pain. That morning in the dripping rain, the words of Eliphaz, like war, exploded in the midst and tore a chasm through the heart of Job. Think now, good friend, and let me probe with you the wisdom of the wise. Have any ears on earth or eyes perceived the innocent so slain? Or have the upright ever lain in ashes as we see you lie, or suffered with such boils? Apply what mind is left to you and find the cause of this great pain behind your seeming innocence, and seek your God in penitence, and keep no longer secret all your sins. Job didn't move or speak. The winds of such incriminations crashed against his staggering soul and smashed the fingers barely grasping to the goodness of his God. That's true, great prince of Uz, the voice belonged to Bildad. O whom have you wronged, once noble Job, 
for I have learned a hundred proverbs, all concerned with many calamities befall a man, and one thread runs through all. The righteous have a prosperous lot, but those who curse and sin do not. The more your sin is large or small, the more your comforts rise and fall. Uncover what is hidden, friend, and there will be a happy end. With swollen eyes unblinking, fixed on Bildad's face, Job felt a mixed affection in his soul. I've known these men for decades now. This tone, this thin and artificial slur against my life, does not concur with years of empathy and love. Job spied the bleeding sky above and pondered whence this turnabout had come. And then so far spoke out. Remember, Job, the Lord is high above the earth, and he can spy iniquity in any place. There is no hiding sin. The face of the Almighty is not veiled by man, nor has he ever failed to see and judge. Job, let your sin be put away, and hide not in your tents the bounty of deceit, and then your days will be all sweet. Job pulled himself up on one side and trembling said, How can you chide a blameless soul? When God for naught has like a wounded eagle caught in his snare and plucked it bare and broken both its wings, I dare you, friends, to demonstrate your word. Make known to me how I have erred. I am not guilty, as you say, and should the great Almighty slay me in this cage, I will with my last breath protest your charge, deny my guilt, and call your wisdom vain. Clichés among the dullards, plain and bright as day to all the blind. Green words unripened in the mind. Whence comes this cure, a crystal ball? Worthless physicians are you all. Then Eliphaz set tenderness aside and said, God will not bless a stubborn soul. How great must be your crime to hide relentlessly behind the guise of innocent travail. I hear the bleak lament of widows that you must have mocked and orphans weeping that you locked outside your doors. Bildad joined in. Come, Job, what other cause but sin would make God crush your children there? He pointed to the valley where the house of Zechariah used to stand. You build your fragile hope on sand, if you cannot discern the hand of God in your demise. Job scanned the faces of his friends, if there might be some opening or prayer. I discern the hand of God, my friends. I grant no other rod, the slightest countenance. What I deny is not that God on high makes winds to blow and lightning strike, but that he rules as you might like. I do not know why I lie here and you sit there, but I am clear. It is not that I have sinned and you are clean. Your maxims, but they flew, but they few, or thousands, will not stand before the bar of God. Oh, that some door were open to the court of God, and I might make my case unflawed before the judge of all the world and prove this storm has not been hurled against me or my children there because of hidden crimes. Spare me now, my friends, your packages of God, your simple adages. Be good and strong, but weak when wrong. They make good rote and clever song, but not hold the wisdom of our God. A whisper from above is all I have, yet from it I have learned through horrid nights that my Redeemer lives, and when my skin has been destroyed... Then from within shall I behold him on my side, and I will live though I have died. So from the mind of John Piper, <clears throat> might have been how it went down. 
we're going to conclude uh, our service this morning with some applicational thoughts. So what does this mean uh, for us? Why is chapters 4 through 25 in the book of Job uh, for us? Four, four things, and so please write these down if you're taking notes. Four applicational thoughts for us. Number one, <clears throat> don't presume suffering is always God's punishment. Number one, don't presume that suffering is always God's punishment. This is the error that Job's friends made, uh, and so we should not presume that. I think, though, we like, and I would like to think that I don't perceive God in this manner, and I think probably you would like to think that as well. In unguarded moments, in times of hurting, um, when uh, things are fresh or wounds are reopened, I think we can fall to the level in the bad thinking of Job's friends. We can ask, what did I do to deserve this? God, why are you punishing me? God, what have I done? God, I think in particular when misfortunes pile up, when they're back to back to back, when we lose our job, when a couple months later our kid is very, very sick, when a week or two later we have a very bad fight with our spouse, and on and on, and calamity seems to be piling up. In unguarded moments, I think our theology slips to that of Job's friends, and we think, God is out to get me. He is punishing me, even though I don't think I have deserved it. And so number one, maybe you sit where Job sits. Maybe you've sat where Job has sat. Maybe you will sit uh, in the ash heap that Job is sitting. Number one, let's not presume that suffering is always God's punishment. Number two, uh, don't presume that obedience is always rewarded by physical blessings repeat that. Number two, don't presume that obedience is always rewarded by physical blessings. That's the other side of the coin. Job's friends thought exactly that, that if we are obedient to God in our relationship with him, that that obligates him to bless us in tangible physical ways. There are undoubted, uh, undoubtedly promises of God's uh, blessings on the obedient uh, in the spiritual sense, and there are some physical blessings that God has promised, but Vastly speaking, from the biblical revelation, God is not obligated to reward us physically in this lifetime for being obedient children to him. Uh, I think that when we think this way and when I think that way, I have a mentality that says, God, you owe me. Have you ever thought that way? God, you owe me? God, I go to church almost every Sunday. God, I have been faithful in giving to the church and other people when I can, God, I am faithful to serve the youth group or the kids' ministries or Awana. God, I, what, you owe me. You owe me. And we think that God owes us a comfortable life, relatively speaking, you know, that God owes us uh, no issues with our kids or no issues with our job or good health. Friends, let's not slip into the other side of this coin and think that just because we are pursuing God in obedience that God is obligated, therefore, to give us a relatively comfortable life without any pain. Because I can think of a lot of Christians in the Bible and a lot of Christians throughout history, their obedience to God led them to physical suffering. Their obedience to God led them to be hung upside down on a cross. And their obedience to God led them to be stoned. And so let's not presume. God oftentimes blesses us tangibly. I'm not saying he doesn't. He does, and he has for many, many of us. 
but he's not obligated by our obedience. Number three, don't presume that undeserved suffering makes God unjust. Number three, don't presume that undeserved suffering makes God unjust. This is the error of Job, is it not? This is what Job thought, that he was innocent, that he did not deserve it, and, uh, you know, relatively speaking, he didn't. He was an upright man. He honored God. He was a good father. He was a man full of integrity. And so in some sense of the word, though he wasn't perfect, he did not deserve <laughs> what he got. And you know what? The same is true uh, for many of us in life. I mean, when we have a relative who is healthy and eats well and exercises and, and does all of the things that they should, and yet they turn up ill. When we as parents do all that we can to raise our kids in a godly manner, we take them to church, we read them the Bible, we pray with them, and when they're 18, they say, the finger to you, God, and I'm running away. And we think, this is undeserved suffering. God, you must be unjust. You must be treating me wrongly. This is the complaint of Job, and we will delve into this further Number three, don't presume that undeserved suffering makes God unjust. Number four, we'll close with this. Don't presume that God owes you an explanation. It gets harder as we go down the list. Don't presume that God owes you an explanation. So here's a question. Have I, uh, I know the answer is yes for me, have you ever demanded answers from God? Have you ever sought to be like Job and bring God to the, not the bench, but the stand. Thank you. Make sure you're paying attention. To the stand. Have you ever been like Job and said, I wish, God, I could take you to court so that I could prove that you were treating me wrongly? Have you ever wanted to take God to the stand and said, God, I deserve an explanation? Just like Tom Cruise, I deserve an explanation. Have you ever been so bold to think that me and you, mere human beings, can act like that with God? I know I have. I know I have. Last week we saw that God can handle our questions. Job, throughout this section, throughout his lament, bombarded God with questions, and it was good. We don't see any rebuke of Job from Job 3. And he questioned, and he asked, and he hurt God can handle our questions, but I think we cross the line when we demand that he answer them. We can handle, God can handle our questions, but I think from the book of Job, we cross the line when we demand that he answer the questions. In closing, Warren Wearsby says this, God's people live on promises, not explanations. God's people live on promises, not explanations. So in closing, I'd like to leave us with a poem by Annie John Flint, I think appropriate. And as the poem ends, I will uh, dismiss us. She says this, I know not, but God knows, O blessed rest from fear. All my unfolding days to him are plain and clear. Each anxious puzzled why from doubt and dread that grows finds answer in this thought, I know not, but he knows. I cannot, but God can, O balm for all of my care. The burden that I drop, his hand will lift and bear. Though eagle pinions tire, I walk where I once ran. This is my strength to know that I cannot, but God can.
Thanks for coming this morning. Next week, we'll continue as Job gives us bits of wisdom about God and he proclaims his innocence once again. Thanks. See you next week.